Good morning. It's a joy to get to open God's Word with you again today. Um, as Odd mentioned, it's a pleasure to be back um, as I continue to job hunt to do this regularly somewhere else. But it's a joy to be back here today um, and open Colossians again with you. Um, as Pastor Stephen mentioned at the beginning of this series, we're going through the entire book of Colossians, Lectio Continua. Nothing is getting missed or ignored. And because of that, today we enter into a section of Paul's letter that can be challenging, divisive. It's what's called a household code, which means it's instructions about how to live in various roles in society. And this text and others like it in the epistles have a divisive history, a divisive reality today, too, as well. It's a portion of God's Word that has caused some pain in the past with how it's been used and abused, a portion of God's Word that stands with others that have caused breaks in denominations, debates on the role of women, debates on slavery, among other things. A part that, in many cases... It would be easier if this were not in the canon. But unlike Thomas Jefferson, who just cut out parts of the Bible he didn't like, that's not what we as believers do. And as 2 Timothy declares, we hold that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And so, this is in the Bible, and so we need to faithfully and prayerfully consider it and study it, and so as we turn to this today, to God's inspired word, we have to take it seriously. But that doesn't make it an easy passage. In fact, in many ways, it makes it harder. So I want to invite you today to be brave, to stick with me and hear what the Spirit is saying in and through God's word. I want to invite you to stay present with me, because I'm guessing that this passage will stir up a variety of feelings and emotions. And whether you think this passage is straightforward or wish it wasn't in Scripture, stay with me, try to be present. Because if you're like me, it would be easier, especially as the one preaching it, if this wasn't in the Bible. It'd be easier to move on to the rest of Colossians and not pay attention. But that's not what we're called to today. That's not our task. So while it may be challenging for any number of reasons, whatever your history with the text may be or how you've had it used or thrown at you, try to be present. Be aware of what's stirring within you, but also to what the Spirit is saying. Let's hold to the truth that all of Scripture is God-breathed. And so as we come to the text, let's listen to how Paul fits this within the whole of his letter which addresses those who have died and risen with Christ. So I invite you, friends, to turn to Colossians 3 with me. A small letter after Galatians and Ephesians, but right before Thessalonians and the Timothys. But before we turn to God's word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and for the Spirit's presence. Let us pray. Holy God of grace and love, you have called us as your chosen people, called us to put on love, to put to death what is earthly and live into new life in you. And so, Lord, as we strive to live faithfully and to live out that call by the Spirit's guidance, 
settle anything within us that hinders our hearing. Help us to hear what your word declares and not what we want it to declare. Open our ears and soften our hearts that in listening we might hear, in hearing we might believe, and in believing we might love better you and our neighbor. In Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Colossians. I'm going to go back to chapter 3, verse 12, which we heard last week, so that we have a runway into what Paul is saying this week. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourself into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Imagine with me, if you will, that you're at a friend's house or someone in your family is watching Spider-Man Homecoming, the first installment of the new Spider-Man saga. And you don't know what movie you're watching. You've never seen it. You don't know anything about it. And you walk into the room and you come upon a scene late in the movie. There's a man sitting in a car and there's a teenage boy in the back in a suit or a tux. It looks like he might be going to a dance. And your head starts going through all these things. Okay, maybe he's dropping him off. Maybe this is the date with her daughter. I don't know what's going on. And the man in the front turns around and asks, does she know? You're like, well, that's a weird question. And the boy responds, no, what? You're like, hey, that was my question. And the man says, so she doesn't. Close to the vest, I admire that. Got a few secrets of my own. Of all the reasons I didn't want my daughter to date. 
Peter, nothing is more important than family. You saved my daughter's life, and I could never forget something like that. So I'll give you one chance. You ready? You walk through those doors, and you forget any of this happened. And don't you ever, ever interfere in my business again, because if you do, I'll kill you and everyone that you love. I'll kill you dead. Okay, that escalated, you think? I still don't really know what's happening, though. That's what I'll do to protect my family, Pete, he continues. You understand? I just saved your life. And what do you say? And the boy awkwardly responds, thank you? Then he gets out of the car and leaves. And you don't know what's going on. Why is this guy threatening? Who's the daughter? What's the secret? Or, since apparently Colossians and Toy Story analogies go well together, at least for me, imagine you walk into a room and someone's watching Toy Story 1. And again, you don't know the movie. Somehow you've been aware of this, even though it's existed for over 20 years. And you see a tiny cloth-looking cowboy and an action figure-looking space ranger, and you don't know, are they toys that are alive? And then you notice this massive gas station around them, and you're really pretty confused. And then the spaceman starts talking into his wrist. And then the cowboy just starts yelling at him. And and frantic about what has happened. And the spaceman starts talking about some emperor named Zerg and pointing to the sky. And the cowboy just snaps. And yells, you are a toy. You aren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're you're an action figure. You're a child's plaything. And the spaceman stoically responds, you're a sad, strange little man. You have my pity. So what's going on there? If you don't know what's happened in the rest of Toy Story, it's just a weird, confusing scene. Because you can't take a part of a story and understand it without the rest of it. And the same is true of any letter and today of Paul's letter before us. And it's the value of reading through this book like we are. Every section we cover We know what has come before. We will see what will come after. And while this is crucial in everything, it's painfully clear that reading Scripture, that a text without the context is a pretext for a proof text. A text without a context is a pretext that is that which comes before for a proof text, taking a text and using it even though that's not what it means. So, when we take a part of Scripture and ignore the book it is in, ignore it from the whole of Scripture, we will fail to understand it rightly. So as we come to this text, within the context of the rest of the letter, what is Paul doing here? Why does Paul suddenly turn to this? He's just called the Christians in Colossae, and thus us, to put off whatever is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, and to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, to above all put on love, and to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so since Paul doesn't have, like, the headings our Bibles often have, and honestly, he probably didn't even have punctuation when he wrote the letter, 
The household code isn't a new chapter. It's not a disconnected sentiment, but the continuation of what he's been talking about. And so Paul has been calling us into newness of life. He has talked, as I preached about in the fall, about our new identity as those who have died to ourselves and been raised to new life in Christ, been sealed by Christ in baptism. And to play on that analogy, also from Toy Story, we have Christ's name written on our foot. We belong to Christ. Paul is calling us into our new identities, to live not as the world defines us, but as those who belong, as our Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, in body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So we were reminded by Scott and Jed last week, the new clothes that we are to put on help shape who we are. They inform and suggest our identity. Identity is not shaped by evil and greed, not by anger and wrath, but compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all, love. So that Christ's perfect peace can dwell In our hearts. And so, says Paul, given these principles of how to live, given that in whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all for the glory of Christ, he now moves into more specific principles, these rules and guidelines for the church in Colossae, on how to live and they can witness and then proclaim the gospel well. And now we don't have time to deeply parse every relationship listed here and Indeed, Paul falls woefully short of listing all of the different relationships people have in life. Yet his overarching point remains true for the Christians at Colossae. So we're going to look at the overarching themes and patterns that Paul follows in this text. How we should read and understand it within the overall context of the book and scripture as a whole. Because just as you would have no clue what was happening in Spider-Man or Toy Story, we need the context. Because a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And friends, we're not proof texting Christians. We don't just take a verse from somewhere because it fits what we want or our point, our argument, our agenda. No. Come on. We're Reformed folks. We see all of the Bible as a unified whole. And we let the text interpret itself. So, in this section... It would seem that Paul is specifically concerned about a few specific relational aspects. About how, as God's people who have died and been raised to new life, who are being sanctified daily, should live. And so if you're in one of these relationships, or if you're not, because if you're not a wife or a husband or a parent, and thankfully none of us are slave owners or slaves, but the moral and ethics that Paul is working with here applies in our new life. The other component of context, though, beyond just what Paul has said, is the historical context. It's crucial to know that the fundamental building block of society in Greco-Roman time was a household. Not in the way we think of a household, or in the way we think even of father, but that was still the core. And so it's important for social order and hierarchy, and the understanding of relationships between parents and their children, and slaves and their masters in this context. And Paul is addressing a group of Gentiles, most likely new believers, who even by becoming Christians, by being in this body, are already shattering cultural norms, being drastically countercultural. So here, 
Paul is trying to guide the believers of Christ to negotiate the very identity that he just laid out. He's trying to show how, as those who have died to themselves been raised to new life in Christ, who have been told to clothe themselves with love, should function. And in this code, Paul is suggesting an accommodation, a strategy of commendation. Yet also, because while at the surface it appears that Paul is affirming the societal norms these people were used to, his basis is completely different. And his reasons are actually a rejection of the societal norm, because he's basing it on the equality of the believers in Christ. Moreover, while this section is an interesting countercultural practice, because note that in each relationship that Paul talks about, he starts with the marginalized party, the subjected party. It's wives before husbands, children before fathers, slaves before masters. Paul is flipping the common structure on its head, not merely addressing the minority group first, but directly, directly. All of these people were in the church. They were part of the body. They just heard the part of this letter before that they have a new life in Christ and to live in a certain way. But all of them are worshiping together. And mere verses before, you might remember that Paul declared there is neither slave nor free. So what is happening here? If there are no longer these divisions in Christ, why address this? In the same manner, in Ephesians, men and women in marriage are instructed to mutually submit to one another. And in Galatians, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. So if there is no distinction in a Christ who breaks down dividing walls, if as those who have died with Christ and been raised in new life with Christ and are clothed with love, why these roles in this time and place? Again, it seems that Paul is getting specific. While there is no distinction, while all are one in Christ Jesus, equal in their humanity, equal in their participation in Christ, the place in which they must live out their lives, where they must live out the call to clothe themselves with love, has rhythms and norms. Norms that by being gent- the, the Gentiles, by even being members of the body, are shattering. So Paul is offering instructions about how to live out their identities as members of the body in the world. How to live into the truth that they are first and foremost children of God, and that Christ has claimed them. But in doing so, it's also a tricky lesson. And I don't want to explain away caring about this text, and it's been used for various reasons in the past to support slavery, though as our denomination and denominations across the globe now declare that that is rejected in the Belhar Confession and in other statements. Notably from the Belhar, that we reject any doctrine which in any such a situation sanctions in the name of the gospel or the will of God the forced separation of people on the grounds of race and color and thereby in advance obstructs and weakens the ministry and experience of reconciliation in Christ. A reconciliation that Paul has been talking about, though not by name, throughout this letter. And I don't think that Paul was using this passage to condone slavery, 
And while some scholars dislike he didn't go further, what Paul is arguing for is a total change in the life and system of those in slavery. That Christians need to and must break the traditional system and treat slaves justly and fairly. That if Christians are to live into this new life, to actually live as those who belong to Christ, to take off impurity and greed and slander and malice and anger and abusive language and to actually put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and above all, love, they are to be true to that clothing and not be like someone wearing a sports team and not knowing their best or even fifth best player or someone wearing a band shirt and not knowing the lead singer. If they're going to wear clothing that is true to who they are, They need to honestly put on these things, to honestly be transformed into Christ's image. And if this is to happen, the traditional model of treating slaves justly and harshly must be broken, and I believe Paul is actually pushing towards the emancipation. But he's also addressing interim measures. Legislation for a present that is passing away. Before the arrival of the future inheritance, That promised equality under the lordship of a Christ who shows no partiality. And Christ continues to make all things new and right and calls us to work towards that future as well. As we work to the day when Christ returns to fulfill all things new and right. And similarly, I think that if the Christians at Colossae take seriously the new clothing they are dressed in as those who have died with Christ and risen again, then the relationship between husband and wife will be one clothed in true, real, deep love, submitting, as Paul writes to Ephesians, to one another, to each other, which I think actually forms the shape and vision of an egalitarian relationship where they are equal, both valued, both loved, together clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love, not one lording over the other. And it's notable that unlike the other commands in this passage, Paul says submit, not obey. As he counterculturally moves the woman from a possession to a person, made in the image of God, transformed from death into new life. Similarly, children, obedience, and parental relationships with them when shaped by these things are a loving, nurturing relationship, fitting in the Lord, growing both parent and child into Christlikeness not a heavy-handed relationship. And so we need to make the same transition that Paul did. As those already in Christ, as those who have died and risen with Christ, as those clothed with Christ and Christ's love, what are the ways that this reality of our new life impacts our lives? Surely, Just as it did then, it must impact how husband and wife love one another. Surely, just as it did then, it must impact how those with children love and care for them. Surely, for a modern parallel, it must impact how those with authority over another treat them justly and fairly. But also, these commands are not ever limited to certain roles that Paul names explicitly. Because, friends, all of us are called into this new life to be transformed by the Spirit, to be clothed in love, to live into that identity as a beloved child of God. 
And so this will take shape in each of our lives in different ways. In love and care for how we show those whom we work with. In joy, humility, and patience, we interact with others even when it takes a little more humility, a little more patience than we feel like we have in us. It means working for justice and fairness for all those who work under someone who are marginalized or oppressed. For justice for those in modern slavery, sex trafficking, and forced labor. Friends, death and new life in Christ. A death and new life that we participate in in baptism. A death and new life that continues every day as we, by the Spirit, die to that which is not of God. And God calls us as God's people as God's chosen people, to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, to forgive and to love, and to live then in certain ways in all of our relationships. Where Christ is the center and Lord, where Christ is in the middle of every relationship, mediating the relationship and transforming it into Christ-likeness. So friends, as God's chosen ones, live in such a way that honors God in whatever place you find yourself, in whatever stage of life you live in. Live out the new life that is in you. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy triune God of grace, who has moved us from death into new life as we go into this week and the rest of our life, shape our hearts and our minds so that we might live into the new life that you have called us to. Amen.